Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm here with Tyler Lambert for the first time in 2022. How are you, Tyler? Hey, Ange. I'm all right. I'm recovering. We'll get to that in a moment. (laughs) On the agenda this week, we'll be talking about the untitling of women, men's mental health and how it's linked to women's economic security. A little on Elena Dokic, more on tennis and a few wins for women. Thank you for listening. So, Tyler, you are recovering. (laughs) Tell us about your last couple of weeks. (laughs) Oh, look, it's no more than what, you know, thousands of people are going through at the moment, but I am a COVID warrior. (laughs) It has been two weeks of feeling pretty horrendous and being cooped up in my bedroom, which is really delightful. But I am on the mend, which is nice. It was a little bit hairy for a moment because I am 17 weeks pregnant, which I wrote a piece about this week. And I think I mentioned to you earlier in the week how I guess this experience of being pregnant and contracting COVID has just made me so ridiculously grateful to be vaccinated. At the moment, vaccination rates for pregnant women are still really low. It really concerns me. And we are glad to know and hear that you are on the mend and you've been working away this week. Like (laughs) no one will even know. Very lucky to be able to work from my bed, which a lot of Australians do not have the, you know, privilege of doing so. But yeah, no, definitely on the mend. Definitely on the mend. How are you? We are going okay. You know, we've got three kids and they'll be sort of re-entering their places of the world over the next few days. So I think like any parent at the moment, we're obviously concerned about that. Really feeling for everyone, really grateful for all our healthcare workers, everyone who's putting in so much to try and uh, support people at the moment as they're going through this. Really, you know, everyone in early childhood education, everyone in any kind of aspect of education right now, especially because I know that everyone's working frantically to try and figure out what term one will look like, what the next few months will look like and how we can ease things as much as possible on kids and keep them as safe as possible as well. What a weird start to 2022. I'm not completely flatlined by it all. Like I still have quite a bit of optimism. I heard a really good saying the other day, which was that I feel more certain about my plans for the next 12 months than I do for the next 12 days. And I think a lot of people can relate to that because it does Mm. feel really hard to know if we're going to get to that thing next weekend or if our kids will make it to that first day of school or if we'll end up in isolation, you know, what will happen next. So the uncertainty. I feel like the optimistic note from you is a good one because I'm probably feeling a little bit less so and it's nice to have a little Ange Priestley pick me up. So let's get to some wins. What is your win this week? Uh, Well, my win is twofold. It's basically that the Australian Open has started and it started without Novak Djokovic, which is doubly funny. But also the fact that, I mean, Ash Barty is always, we we talk about her so much. She's always a beacon of hope for everyone. And I love watching her and she's just been absolutely tearing it up. But I also have loved the interaction between she and Yelena Dokic this week and the interview that they did together. And I just thought it was so beautiful and human and empathetic and not at all what we see from tennis commentators and post-match interviews typically. 
So Yelena Dokic, basically after Ash Barty's first win, really noted her achievements over the last few years, but particularly over the last 12 months and winning Wimbledon and what that meant for Dokic herself to see a fellow Australian woman win Wimbledon. And Ash Barty, humble as ever, just, you know, accepted that praise really graciously, but also talked about how important her Indigenous roots were and have been to kind of shaping the tennis player and the person that she is today. We posted a quick piece this week on it, but it just has gone, you know, viral on Facebook. I think so many people have watched that interview as well and they felt exactly the same way. They felt moved in exactly the same way. And I just think that it would be really nice to see more of that in sport. So I'm going to do two wins. Maybe my second win we might lead into a bit of a short discussion on. So the first one was actually a story that we published last week. So I want to give it a mention about Justice Aisha Malik, who is set to become Pakistan's first female Supreme Court judge. That would happen potentially in August this year. So she will replace somebody who is retiring on the Supreme Court And it would, if approved, and it still has to go through another process of approval, which it is expected to be approved, but if approved, it would kind of put her on track to become Chief Justice of Pakistan by 2030, which would be another first for women. So she's had like such a massive fight to get to this point and she has been known for delivering landmark rulings on behalf of sexual assault survivors, particularly in Pakistan, to protect their dignity and their rights. And she's been really powerful in the movement around female justices internationally. But she's faced a lot of backlash to her candidacy, which is scary and disturbing. The president there had called for the country to protest against her name being considered, claiming she was to junior for the appointment and the Pakistan Bar Council has also called for her name to be rejected and threatened its own boycott of the court. So the claim is there that she doesn't have as much experience as other justices. So possibly they, I just feel like there's a bit of a point missing here that maybe you do need some women on your highest court of the land. It would actually be really useful for you. And at some point, maybe you say, yeah, we'll take the person with 20 years experience over the person with 25 years experience for the sake of actually getting a tiny piece of diversity. So yeah, great to see that that's happening. So let's hope it does get that final approval and that she is in that chair by August this year. You'd like to think so. <laughs> What's your second win? I've got a second win. Okay, this, I mean, it's not so much a, a win for women. It's, I don't know if this is a win for the world, what it is, but good to know that the 10 richest men in the world actually doubled their fortunes during the pandemic. I don't think that is a win for the world. So that's according to Oxfam. You know, well done to them because I just don't feel like they, you know, the likes of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, you know, Bill Gates and all. I just don't feel like they had enough and now they've got more. So that is fantastic news, fantastic (laughs) for wherever those billions go. Let's hope that they can go to some kind of good, we hope, and, you know, sometimes they do. But, yeah, fantastic for them. Not a win. Let's get to the crux of this. This, So this is from Oxfam, Oxfam report released this week. It's called Inequality Kills. And so it did find that staggering figure that the world's 10 richest men actually increased their fortunes from $700 billion to $1.5 trillion during the first two years of COVID, so roughly at $15,000 a second or $1.3 billion a day. So, you know, that's a good way to think about reasons to get up in the morning. The report also noted that even if the men were to lose 99.999% of their fortune, they would still be richer than 99% of the world's population. 
it's just absolutely incredible and staggering figures to think about this massive wealth divide that exists in our world that has only gotten bigger over the past two years. So I don't know if you need to tell me who the world's richest men are, but you can go and check out the story that we've published on this report on our website. You can see it all there. You can see all the figures. It is incredible. But, you know, this report looked at the conditions for some of the world's poorest people along with their reduced incomes, and they noted that these reduced incomes is contributing to the death of, and their estimate is 21,000 people every day, which is absolutely awful to think about. The report also dives into vaccine inequity and the inability for some countries and particularly frontline workers and those working in healthcare to actually access vaccines. And, you know, we we talked about that 21,000 people dying every day. And we talked about that staggering figure of that one second and how much those 10 richest men are making every second. But they put it down as every four seconds inequality is contributing to the death of at least one person globally. So just a way to start 2022. I know not the best news, but I think like it's really important to keep these figures in mind in front of centre as we think about the impact of the pandemic globally and as we think about other major world events and as we think about climate change and other things that are just so essential to keep front of mind this year, the impact on inequality and then subsequently what inequality means for the individuals and the people who are affected by that vast gaps in wealth. Yeah. And I think that just quickly on that, Gabriella Butcher, who is Oxfam International's executive director, one of the organisation's points in, I guess, bringing these statistics to light and this report to light is also to push for a one-off 99% windfall taxation of these billionaires' incomes, which it's also noted could generate $812 billion. That's just totally unreasonable. (laughs) I know. But I mean, I suspect there are some people that would be listening to that and being like, oh, that's a huge tax. But when you consider how much wealth is still there and held by, you know, this tiny proportion of Mm. white men. They probably spend more money on their lawyers trying to avoid paying tax than that figure that they're calling for. (laughs) So, Yeah, it's true. (laughs) <laughs> or like just in having like little Twitter feuds together and, and coming up with the best memes. I mean, I love the Twitter feuds. Like they can, I mean, that is worth the billions alone. Like there's no That's billions of dollars of entertainment right there. Yeah. So you can go and check out the story and particularly have a look more at their take on around the issue of vaccines. It's been described as a stain on the history of our species, that vaccine apartheid. So you can have a look at that. So over to you, Tyler. I am really interested in the piece that you published earlier this morning on men's mental health and looking at the impact on men's women's health that cross to women. So could you share a little bit more about that and what you learned? Yeah. So at the end of last year, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Barbara Broadway, who is the chief author of this research. And it's through the Melbourne Institute Applied Economic and Social Research from the University of Melbourne. And they conducted an analysis of men's mental well-being and how it's been impacted by the pandemic. And it actually 
is now immeasurably or measurably responsive to their partner's employment status in a way that it's never been before. So 37% of men whose partners are jobless report mental distress versus 27% of men with partners who remain employed. This is really interesting because even though that might not seem like a really kind of interesting fact, the truth is that historically men haven't or their mental health hasn't apparently been impacted by managing a, a single income. But the pandemic has kind of exacerbated these fears in people and now it's perceived as a lot riskier for men who in normal circumstances would have been less bothered by being a sole earner to actually take on that task. And I thought it was also interesting, and and obviously this isn't noted in the research, but I suspect that there'll be more kind of analysis into this at a later date as well. But whether or not this new kind of trend will actually see efforts in how we boost women's economic participation, because there's now another reason to do so. If there weren't already a myriad reasons to do it, this is another aspect of that that we now need to look at. The fact that mental health is being adversely impacted, both women's mental health and men's mental health. So, you know, maybe we do need to look into the policies that better support that, um, whether that be childcare reform or, or paid parental leave. But yeah, I, I mean, I just thought it was, it's a really interesting piece of research. Barbara Broadway also notes the fact that we have quite a flimsy social safety net as well because there was also an escalation in mental distress at the time that the government's JobKeeper subsidy was repealed and that points to the fact that there is a, a real lack of confidence that goes on around whether or not we have what we need to attain adequate income support when we most need it. And so I think, again, that points to another policy area which the government probably needs to look at right now. And there is so much research that has come off the back of the pandemic around how people's attitudes have changed, what's shifted and how mental health particularly has been impacted. And I, yeah, I would encourage anyone to go and have a look at this piece and to also look at the wider report through the Melbourne Institute, who will be doing a little bit more work in the weeks to come as well and doing kind of bigger deep dives into some of the research that they're doing in this space too. I hope that this sort of research can help in resetting the idea of women's issues or the idea of things that support people to participate in the workforce as being only about supporting women to participate in the workforce. I feel like, you know, we, we've got to move past this. We still have this mindset of this dual household of two parents being available and one person taking on the primary care responsibility in a family and the other person not. And so often that can be see a men being able to prioritise their careers, which is why we see the stats that show that, you know, men's incomes actually increase after they have children while women's incomes actually decrease. And we just need a complete reset of this to see the benefits that will come to everyone, not just for, you know, men in terms of mental health, not just for women in terms of more economic security later on, but just in terms of being able to have a much more functional workforce where people can hopefully be happier, where people can feel 
more secure and also where we can take this and apply it to say single parents as well and just move away from this idea of the two-person household of one taking on one part of the role and the other person taking on the other part and just completely obliterate that for good because it's just not realistic anymore to our current way of working and our current way of living. A hundred percent. And for families to be able to kind of dictate those terms on their own end as well um, and to find that dynamic that works for them, I think is is really critical here. But yeah, look, it's really fascinating research. So I want to move on to the topic of untitling. And so we will touch on this also for our FinHacks segment, which is going to come up shortly. And that's our FinHacks segment supported by Superhero. But first, I thought we might just look at the issue of untitling a little bit more generally. So this comes from a piece that we published from Dr. Sky Kinder. I don't really have much experience with untitling. I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. I don't have a medical background. So it's hard to sort of necessarily know what this feels like in that sense or to have the personal experience to be able to call on anecdotes to say this is actually happening. But Dr. Sky Kinder, she notes that it has happened to her. She sees it. Um, it can be quite subtle. And she talks to a specific example at the top of this story where she looks at an interview that had three doctors in it where both male doctors were captioned with the title doctor, but the female doctor that was quoted, her title was actually omitted. And the interview was all about the topic of working accident and the new doctor. So it just seemed like a bit of, you know, was that an accident? What is going on subconsciously? What is actually occurring? Is it a big deal? It clearly is a big deal. And this story had a massive response. And we had a lot of people saying how and where it has happened to them as well. What did you make of the piece, Tyler? Because you, you actually published it earlier this week. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing piece. And it's a topic that we need to kind of talk more about we don't really it's a another facet of unconscious bias but I think it happens you know I don't think that you need to necessarily be a doctor or a professor to have this kind of happen to you in a sense you know I think it's the ways in which we talk about female experts or thought leaders and I think we're all kind of guilty of it right like I don't think that it's just coming from men I think sometimes I I would do it you would do it it's something that we need to try to make ourselves conscious of so that it doesn't happen. But even in, you know, day-to-day writing or, or talking, we may refer to a female expert by her first name in a way that we wouldn't with a male. Yeah, I just think that there are various kind of nuances of this kind of idea of untitling, but I think it's just such an important area to draw focus to. And I really like the way that Dr. Kinder has talked about the ways in which we could try to mitigate it, whether it's actually calling it out through social media, creating a hashtag, building up a bit of a campaign around it so that we do become aware of it. Because we do know with unconscious bias that the only way to really prevent it or stop it is to, as I said, become conscious of our actions. So that was my read on it. I think that everyone should go and have a look at it. And I'm sure that there are thousands of our readers that can directly relate to what Dr. Kind is talking about and her own experiences there. Exactly. So hold that thought and we will go to our FinHack segment. So our FinHack segment is supported by Superhero, which is the app that makes investing accessible and affordable for everyone. So Tyler, 
We were talking earlier about the concept of untitling and how it actually contributes to stopping women being seen and recognised for the work that they do. And as we noted, this came from a piece published on Women's Agenda from Dr Sky Kinder who noted where she has seen the title of doctor being omitted in reference to women and then not the men and where she has personally experienced this and the broader impact of this actually occurring. It got us thinking also about the financial impact and something that we might be wanting to think about here, not just in terms of being doctor or professor, but untitling in general and where maybe men might be preferenced uh, when you go to a bank for a loan or for whatever reason it is uh, compared to women. What do you think, Tala? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, this could happen in so many different ways. And one thing that I thought about was actually around events and the fact that so many events claim that they can't find the right female experts and that's why, you know, we're inundated with mannels. If we're omitting women's expertise through media and we're not giving them the recognition that they deserve through this practice of untitling, is that actually stopping us from being able to visibly celebrate these women and give them the platforms and recognition they deserve through these kind of paid speaking events or even things like, you know, media recognition being used as spokespeople. And I I think that there are lots of links to the kind of financial impact and and what that could mean for for women. And again, I want to go back to some of Dr. Kinder's suggestions there on how we can really call it out and why it's important to do so. I mean, Dr. Kinder's noted the sisterhood here and how women kind of do need to support each other in calling this out. But I I would also appeal to a lot of men who recognise this, who can see the points that are being raised here to do the same and to take to social media to reveal this kind of unconscious bias that we know that is all around us. It's pervasive. And so Dr Kinder has used um, as a guide point as the hashtag untitled women so that we can digitally catalogue these occurrences. And maybe through that as well, we can draw focus to some of the female experts and thought leaders that we are regularly missing here who do deserve to be recognised in that way um, and, you know, who could very likely find a lot of of kind of financial benefit in having their title properly recognised. So that was one thought of mine. Yeah, and I, I agree. It's it's one of those things where I think that if we look at the broader picture around women's economic security, this is an important factor of it. So it is that untitling, that's one thing, but we've also got to think about women's expertise more generally, whether or not they're doctor, professor, whatever, but more generally about the fact that we need those expertise to be out there and to get heard and to be able to visibly see women as role models, um, especially in the media at conferences and events, industry events, we we still know that the all-male panel is somehow still occurring. We still know that in certain types of events particularly, women can be omitted off the idea that, oh, well, there just aren't enough, you know, ASX 200 female CEOs, so therefore we can't possibly, we have to completely reframe and reset that to make sure that women are not being omitted from having these experiences, not only for themselves and for their own prospects, but actually so that we can all visibly see those role models as well. And so that girls can see 
women in STEM doing what they do, women in academia, women in healthcare, whatever it is, to see the possibilities of what they are because we know that ultimately those career possibilities will support women's economic security later on. So it is all linked. I like the link, Tyler. Thank you for sharing it. (laughs) No, well, thank you, Dr Kinder, for writing the piece. So thanks again to Superhero for supporting us in this week's FinHack and supporting the podcast this week. You can learn more about your options at superhero.com.au or download the Superhero app. You have been cooped up in a room for like 10 days now. There's a little bit of sunlight coming through. It doesn't look totally awful. So any key recommendations that you have from your isolation days. Goodness. What's a really good thing to watch when you're feeling really, really under the weather with COVID? Oh, God. Well, actually, I have to say, the first couple of days of COVID, you cannot think straight. And so you actually messaged me being like, oh, how good you get to just have a couple of days. I did not say that. (laughs) (laughs) I I was very careful not to say that. No, you didn't say how good. That is that is <laughs> that is a misquote. But you did say, well, Netflix in your room by yourself is kind of nice, which in normal terms it would be really nice. But when you have, well, my experience with COVID has been pretty gross. And you're just, your brain, your head, everything aches. So you're probably not watching that much. I have just had really crappy sitcoms and things on repeat. So I can't really, I don't have a huge amount to tell you. I did watch that very controversial Netflix movie, Don't Look Up. Have you seen that? I have definitely seen that. (laughs) Yes. I don't know. I feel like I was oddly engaged the whole way (laughs) I didn't think that it was a particularly nuanced message about climate change I think it was an interesting kind of theory but it wasn't exactly executed properly yeah I thought I really liked it I thought it was uh very like overt in its message like so it's kind of a little bit over the top in that way um it was anything but subtle and Um, At times, maybe it got let down by some of the writing, but I really enjoyed the movie and I loved seeing Kate Blanchett. I didn't even realise it was her. And played a a really fun and interesting part. I thought the relationships were executed in a way and that was interesting and I was gripped and I was engaged from the first minute and I have seen that it has gotten a lot of negative reviews and then I think the the creator, the director, came out and basically said, oh, you just don't like the message (laughs) (laughs) you can dislike this movie you can criticize it and still be like all for climate action um so that was it it tried to kind of make it as if if you didn't like the movie then you just didn't want to see that message and it wasn't necessarily the case anyway I mean I don't think anyone is going to sort of be changed by it I don't think like no I didn't think it was a groundbreaking film and I think that even though it was yeah, as I said, I think that the the concept of it was interesting. I just think that it could have been done in a slightly more nuanced way that was a bit more compelling. But it is a really great cast. And as I said, I was like very engaged with it the whole way through. So yeah, go and watch it if you guys haven't already. Although I suspect most of 
the country has yeah, along with Emily in Paris so heavily promoted it's been everywhere yes I have I have also uh watched the whole second season of Emily in Paris which I don't feel good about <laughs> <laughs> all right well thank you for listening to the women's agenda podcast a reminder that you can get access to all the stories that we discussed at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to the daily newsletter to get these stories direct to your inbox thank you Tyler I'll speak to you again next week Thanks, Edge.